Hi, this is Kelly. This is the 14th episode of the Two Broads Talking Politics Vote Her In series, a collaboration with author Rebecca Sive, where we look at the movement to elect our first woman president. On today's episode, our special guest is Audra Wilson, the executive director of the League of Women Voters of Illinois. If you want to hear the rest of the episodes in this series, you can find them at twobroadstalkingpolitics.com slash vote her in or in our regular feed anywhere podcasts are found. everyone. This is Kelly with Two Broads Talking Politics, and we are on today with the 14th episode of our Vote Her In series, where we cover the movement to elect our first woman president. I'm joined today by my partner in this venture, Rebecca Sive. Hi, Rebecca. Hi there. Glad to be talking. Yes. Thrilled to be talking again. And uh, we are joined today by a special guest, Audra Wilson, who leads the League of Women Voters in Illinois. Hi, Audra. Hello. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. It's great to have you here, Audra. And Kelly and I were talking before about our hometown pride in doing this generally, but specifically about the fact that having read some of the history about the League, we realized that it was founded in Chicago and perhaps right down the street from your office. Is that right? It, it literally is a walking distance from my office. It's at the Congress Hotel. It was founded mm-hmm. on February 14th of 1920. And so we were thinking about the fact, and, and maybe you could sort of give the listeners a flavor of this. I mean, we mm-hmm. really wanted to have you on this month as probably people have guessed because we're in Women's Suffrage Month, right? And uh, we're looking ahead to the centennial of suffrage. And, of course, the League came out of the effort to uh, get suffrage for American women. And so we thought we should look a little bit back at uh, how the League then went from being primarily a suffrage organization to really a massive women's organization focused on a lot of issues. And then we can talk a little bit more about you know, the the leadership aspect of it. But if you could sort of give us the feel for it all. Absolutely. So we are, as you just mentioned, we are an organization that was born out of women's suffrage. Our founder is Carrie Chapman Catt, who was one of the pioneers in the women's suffrage movement. And the league was actually formed during the National American Women's Suffrage Association annual meeting, February 14th of 1920 at the Congress Hotel. The organization is actually a, a nonpartisan uh, civic organization, and its its name really is a, an homage to being born out of women's suffrage. But really, its original intent was to now give the 20 million new individuals who have the right to vote the not only the ability to do so, but to give them the support as they now learn how to exercise this this wonderful and hallowed right. 
And so that is still the undercurrent in the work that we have today. Uh, we are, Our mission, though we are not exclusively uh, working for women, although obviously uh, we are very women-centered and women-focused and, and have the female sensibilities there, but we do definitely believe that it is important that people understand what it means to vote, how hallowed a right that is, and we want to make sure that they're exercising their right to vote. Not only that they're exercising it, but they're doing so responsibly and with the most knowledge as possible. So we've seen recently, of course, some attacks on that that right to vote uh, and, you know, trying to restrict the right to vote in, in a lot of states, not as much in Illinois, thankfully. But what what are some of the ways that the League of Women Voters sort of re- responds to those efforts to sort of restrict who, who gets to vote, how we vote uh, and sort of a, an attack on our democracy? Well, it's important for listeners to understand that there have been uh, impositions in the right to vote from the minute every group has been uh, allowed the right to vote, quite frankly. So when we are looking back in our history, you can see, for example, with the passage of of, of the 19th Amendment, though theoretically this this right to vote was, was, was granted for women, it took another 45 years before passage of the Voting Rights Act that would allow um, African Americans to be able to vote unfettered, you know, without interference, because you had a whole legacy of, of poll taxes and literacy tests and other sorts of obstacles that were, and these were actual obstacles, not constructive, but actual ob- obstacles to people being able to cast their, their ballots. And so after 45 years of these, 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 schemes to keep people from being able to vote. We had passage of the act. But yet today we still have to look um, at at more schemes that just have been waiting to to be hatched or have been hatched. So for example, the the protections of the Voting Rights Act have have unfortunately begun to erode because you would think after passage in 1965 that we'd be in an era where we don't need to be worrying about this anymore. But the very states that were implicated, you know, with with the most severe charges of um, impeding that right to vote for African American. Americans, hence the need for the Voting Rights Act, were the first ones to start to devise these new schemes to to impede that right to vote. And you see that by way of, for example, um, all of a sudden needing to reaffirm identification or or forms of identification when right up until this time there had been no problem with someone being able to to submit a certain form of ID. And now all of a sudden new people have to submit additional forms of ID under this ruse of voter fraud and, and people who are voting who shouldn't be voting, notwithstanding the fact that multiple administrations have looked at the notion of voter fraud and have found that the incidence of voter fraud or it's rampant voter fraud are infinitesimal. So that's just one example of, of what's been happening. You're also seeing things that seem very benign in the surface, like closing a precinct, a polling precinct, until right. you find out that the precinct is in a location where Perhaps it's in a rural area where there is a a specific population of color that has been um, voting there for years and years, and there's nothing close by for within like a 10-mile radius. And all of a sudden, inexplicably, it's closed or consolidated to a location that is now inconvenient for individuals for whom this had been very convenient. So, again, seems benign on the surface, but when you look at the impact of these sorts of these sorts of acts, and you realize that there is some insidiousness to it. You know, I was thinking about this as I I saw that there's an article. I haven't had a chance to read it yet about uh, Stacey Abrams in this week's New Yorker, and. I was really struck, and I think it underscores your point, 
by the fact that when she, you know, lost the gubernatorial race, and it seems because of the kind of bad behavior, I guess is what mild word for it, on the voting front, it was really striking to me that what she decided then to do was to respond to that kind of a problem because she realized just how, you know, pervasive it is and destructive it is in so many places. And um I think I, you know, kind of feel that that must have given new energy, for instance, to some league activities. Oh, absolutely. I think there were a lot of league members, and I should say that league members, though we were founded in Illinois, it is a national organization, so there are league members throughout the country. And certainly those who were in the state of Georgia were, were fired up. But quite frankly, the, watching the election and, and seeing that the that the Stacey Abrams opponent, who was the Secretary of State and the person right. who ostensibly was overseeing the very election that he was running for, um, right. and, and not this not raising red flags left, right, and center, it, it definitely fired up a lot of people. Um, obviously, within the league and, and externally, as it should have been, because these are just very basic, obvious things that you would think that, for propriety's sake, um, for transparency that we would we would want to say this is not a good idea and yet this person was still allowed to be able to oversee and make decisions right. regarding um ca- casting ballots and identification and other sorts of things related to the very election that he was uh, for the opposite he was seeking i just would say on a personal note i i don't think of myself as naive but when i first read that you know i kind of had to read the news article twice i mean Maybe maybe I'm really naive, but, you know, so uh, one of the things we wanted to ask about, and I, and I give it to, to Kelly to ask, was how this activity on voter, voting rights and other uh, related issues leads to your, the League's activity in building women leaders. I'm not sure I had heard much about the League of Women Voters prior to the 2016 election, but I've heard a lot about it since then uh, with with a rise of, of women activists, of, of activists who care about things like voting rights. So I'm wondering, you know, if, if you have seen increased activism and, and how that has affected the, the work that you do and the, the way that you're thinking about transparency in government. Absolutely. Well, it, it is not a, a secret within the league that we had an appreciable bump in our membership across the board, meaning across the country after 2016, after November of 2016. And though we are a nonpartisan organization, we, you know, we, we are proud of having members of all different walks of life. You know, obviously there is definitely some connection between the, the, the results of the election and those who felt very frustrated and were not pleased with the outcome and felt as though they needed to have their voices heard um, and they, they need to be more active. And so they were able to find an organization and and they've actually been very active within our organization since. So, um, you know, so we definitely recognize, especially with within these last three years now, that the notion of, of disenfranchisement, this, it's not just a notion. It's its not something that is a, just a concept that people say, well, you know, are people really disenfranchised in this day and age? And the answer is yes. There is literal disenfranchisement. There's constructive disenfranchisement. But the other thing that we have to also acknowledge is that we also have a lot of apathy. And I think some of that comes from from frustration 
some of that comes from people feeling as though perhaps my vote doesn't matter, it doesn't count. Um, some of that comes from actual problems, the physical problems that we have with being able to cast ballots. Um, I worked prior to the uh, League of Women Voters. I was working for five and a half years with the United States House of Representatives. And my member of Congress actually worked on a, a subcommittee, the IT subcommittee, um, and worked on issues of cybersecurity. And I was shocked just how compromised our nation's system is as it pertains to hacks. And, we, and you're seeing some evidence of this from, you know, from Equifax and other entities. But the vulnerability of our voting systems um, um, to be hacked um, is, is a real problem. And so, you know, it, it, it's, it's when you're thinking about all these things together, it's like, wow, this is a really frightening thing for individuals who simply want to carry out, again, this purportedly hallowed American right okay. to be able to cast the ballot. Now, in contrast to other countries, for example, I had some friends of mine in from Australia, and believe it or not, it's out of the mouths of babes when it was a, a 14-year-old said to me, well, I don't understand why you're having all this discussion about um, getting people out to vote in Australia, it's mandated. Mm-hmm. You have to vote. Right. And, you know, and, and then her little brother chimes in saying, yeah, <laughs> you know, what's, what's going on in the U.S.? And, you know, and it's, it's interesting because I'm smiling and I had to look this up for myself. Like, really? You know, this is, it's, it's compulsory. And, but their, their point being that they, they're scratching their head at, as to why we're having these conversations about, a, protecting that right to vote, and B, for those you know, who have now been able to protect that right to vote, convincing them to come out and actually vote, that this is foreign to them. They don't understand that. And it is a frustrating thing for us. So our mandate at the League is sort of twofold. We want to remove all impediments. We want to register as many people as possible. And more importantly, you know, keep them engaged. And we engage them and, and encourage them to come out the vote, to, to vote with education. We take the time to educate people not only about the process of voting, where to vote, and and who are the candidates for whom they, they have the option to vote, but we also want to look substantively at those issues, the most salient issues that are happening within a particular election cycle that might compel someone, whether it's at the state, local, or, or federal level, to be able to come out and cast that ballot. People have to know what's at stake and, and that you're not just going out to vote for, oh, it's those same old politicians. Right. No, it's about issues. And if you do not um, involve yourself in these elections, you will now have people who are making decisions on your behalf on issues that that feed directly into your lifestyle and your livelihood. And you have not been able to, to, to express your opinion, to to let them know with your vote whether you think they're worthy of being able to 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 advocate on your behalf. And that's very serious, especially at the municipal level, where the it's a much more direct impact than your local elected official has on you, quite frankly, than perhaps your United States Senator or United States Representative. And people don't always appreciate that. So I noticed, speaking of what's at stake in terms of the issues that at the recent luncheon, uh, you really focused heavily, which I thought was wonderful, on equal pay. And, of course, that's a primary issue for every woman voter uh, and every woman, including those not old enough to vote. And I wondered why, was there any sort of, you know, what the thinking was behind, well, we're going to talk about equal pay at the same time as we're about to celebrate uh, a centennial of suffrage and at the same time as we're now looking at the possibility of our first woman president. You know, what was the thinking behind that and 
what was the message that you want uh, people to hear? Well, listen, I never miss out on an opportunity to to <laughs> toot a horn about talking about us turning 100. So, <laughs> so right. notwithstanding what the theme of the day might be, you will always hear me find a way to weave in why we're here 100 years later. And you will continue to hear me say this until December 31st of 2020, when we're finally out of our centennial year. But the reason why our focus was on equal pay is because we we really feel it's important for us to highlight the issues that are the most important, the most salient, the ones that need to get attention, especially those that, that impact so many people but yet seem to get little attention. We have worked assiduously as on the issues of equal rights or equal passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, it was ratified, obviously, in Illinois in June of last year of 2018, and we were at the front lines for passage or ratification in Illinois. But, but equal pay is an extension, a natural extension from that discussion, and it is not just a women's issue. Equal pay is an, is an American issue. It is a family issue. It affects men, women, and children. More often than not, women are now the co-breadwinners or the sole breadwinners of their household. Right. And yet, when we are talking about disparities in pay that start almost from the minute they begin working and only get um, wider as they get older, um, this is impacting American households and families, the ability for women to be able to provide for those families, of which, by the way, they are raising males and females. Um, they are supporting entire households or co-supporting entire households. So we really feel as though this was an issue that we it's, it's so universal, it, it is so widespread, and yet it is one that does not get enough attention, or it is it's also an issue that I think a lot of people misunderstand. Um, there's a lot of misinformation about what does it mean to be paid equal pay for equal work. And a lot of people also think about, they say, well, don't we already have that codified? Aren't there already protections for equal pay? Why are we even having these discussions? And when you have to go all the way back there to say, well, let me explain to you why we're having this discussion. That to me was a sign that this is a very salient issue and one that we should take this opportunity right now in this place or space to be able mm -hmm. to discuss. It also helped to have the women's soccer team and others kind of bring that to the <laughs> right. forefront too. So um, right. I'm not going to tell you that that didn't certainly help, you know, push the issue forward. But we felt like what a perfect opportunity, especially as we are on the cusp of a presidential election, as we are having this, this kind of front and center of this issue, and it's a natural extension, natural extension of our advocacy in the equal rights space to be able to talk about it. And related to the presidency, and I'm wondering, it's my contention in the book, Volker, in that uh, there is a way, and I talk a lot about the equal pay matter, uh, for women across, you know, barriers of class and race and so on to come together specifically on these economic issues as a way of, you know, mobilizing women to vote for a woman president. And I'm wondering whether that kind of theme is something that can resonate with league members too or whether you all have thought about it because I think that you know the idea of tying together we can work on these issues but they, there can be this giant leap forward you know if we have a woman president is something that could be mobilizing. It could definitely be mobilizing but I think what it also does um, for our league members is for them to recognize and, and I, I love my league members because I think they really do get it but now they're trying to make sure we're conveying this to everyone. And that is, as we're talking about mobilizing women, we still have to acknowledge that 
between and amongst women, there are, are major differences. Equal pay is a perfect example of that. When we talk about 80 cents in the dollar, you're talking about women in the aggregate, you know, to right. what they make to a, to a, a white male. But when you break down by ethnicity or race or ethnicity, then you see the disparity. That chasm is much, much wider. So you're talking about 63 cents or 61 cents for, for, for black women um, and 58 and 53 cents respectively for Native American women and for Latina women. And so when you look at the, those numbers and you realize that if we do not have these conversations, I mean these sub-conversations, not just the overarching what impacts women, but recognize that there are racial divides and disparities between and amongst women. If we don't do that, then quite frankly, it, it may not be as, as, as resonant as it needs to be to have a woman president if we're not acknowledging the fact that it's not just mm-hmm. enough that you're a woman. You have to recognize that there is a, a whole legacy of, of, of racial disparity in this country that has to be addressed. And as women, we want to make sure that our candidates are, are acknowledging that and are positing solutions that reflect the fact that there are those great racial disparities that have to be addressed because there are inequities between white women and women of color. When you were talking earlier about the, the increase in activism uh, by women, the, the women who are joining your organization, do you see a, a direct line from that increased activism to women then running for office, voting for women? You know, what, what do you see as the connection there? I see a connection with um, women getting far more, they're very, to use Barack's expression, to get they're very fired up. To, to get out there and to make their voices heard. I've seen a lot of incite, excitement and enthusiasm, especially in, in, among younger women and more women of color, people who are feeling disenfranchised. And so we are trying to make ourselves more appealing to those individuals to see, for them to see that we are an organization that, that welcomes and we are excited to have that, that infusion of their enthusiasm and their aggressiveness. And more importantly, their perspective, because we recognize their perspective is valued or valuable. I would say with respect to running for office, yes, we've definitely seen, even among our own members um, who have felt inspired to actually want uh, to run for, for uh, local office. And so I'm excited to see that. There are several league members that I've met in my very short tenure who have been inspired to want to run. And of course, as league members, we're, ex- we're excited for them and want to support them. As for voting for a woman president, I will say league, our league members are you know, obviously would love to be able to support a woman president, but league members are very pragmatic and they're very, you know, they're they're very discerning and they would love to be able to support a woman candidate, but they are not inclined to support someone simply because she is a woman. They're going to ask the very same, same difficult, discerning questions as they would of any other candidate. And they are going to make sure that until such time that they get the answers that they need and um, from these candidates, that, that that's how they're going to cast their ballot. So I think the there's not a, a presumption, at least in my mind, that, that lead members are more inclined to support a, a female candidate necessarily. Obviously, they'd be very excited to see a, a, a woman as president, but they would be no more excited to see her as president as they would someone else that they feel would be able to uphold their values and the things and be receptive to the things that are most important to women and, and women of all walks and, and, and all uh, backgrounds. So I, I just think it's important because I know maybe it's my sensitivity as a woman of color 
sometimes that presumption like, oh, would you want a candidate of color? Well, sure, I'd love to see a candidate of color that wins. But if the person is not saying the things that I think he or she needs to say um, or positing positions that I think are going to really be advantageous to other persons of color, then I'm not necessarily inclined to support them. Well, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things about this, of course, you're coming from a, uh, and rightly so, nonpartisan organization, but one of the things I know a lot of our listeners feel, and, and maybe we'll conclude on this high note, is that at least among the leading women candidates on the Democratic side at the moment, they are espousing, you know, wonderful policy positions for women uh, of all kinds. And I think for me personally, being, you know, like the two of you, a sort of policy nerd, you know, that's just, as you say, really important. It isn't symbolism. It's actual substance that they're discussing and, and changes they're advocating for, which are I think what a lot of different women need. We want to make sure that we uh, give you the chance to tell people how they can get involved with the league, uh, both nationally and locally. And so if you would do that, Audra, before we formally thank you. Well, of course. And, and thank you again for having me talk to your, your wonderful listeners. I will say that the, the league is open to anyone 16 years of age and over, and we we would we love women of all backgrounds, walks of life, and men, of course, because we are not we are not exclusively for women. We have got a lot of male members as well. You just need to come to our website, which is lwvil.org, League of Women Voters of Illinois.org, and you will see information about how you can become a member. We have local leagues throughout the entire state of Illinois, um, so depending upon where you live, you'll be able to identify a local league that's closest to you, and then there'll be information about how you can sign up. So we, we're excited to have um, folks um, register. And also, when you sign up for um, a membership in Illinois, you also automatically become a member of LWV US, which is our, our parent. So Audra, because we're happy to report we have listeners all over the country, can you tell us uh, for someone who might live in Georgia or Mississippi or New York, what's that address that they can go to and find their local contact people? So what I would have anyone outside of the state of Illinois do mm-hmm. is simply just type in League of Women Voters and then put in your respective state. And then you will get information that will pop up um, about either the state league or a local league chapter closest to you. Not every single state has a central administrative body, but there are leagues spread all throughout the country. Another way you might be able to do it is to go to lwv.org, which is our uh, our national league, and you can also find information about how to get connected through your respective states. So there's several different ways to, to get connected or involved. Great. Great. We'll put the the links to those on our website as well. Thank you. So thank you so much, Audra. It's been uh, fun to watch you doing the work there and how you've moved along and just have had a bigger and bigger impact as the years have gone by. So I'm excited that you're at the league and we really thank you for taking the time to talk with us. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the support. I'm excited to do this work. Great. And we'll be watching closely as the, the centennial celebration ramps up. We're super excited about that as well. I'm, I'm inviting both of you, so I expect to see you there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Excellent. Thanks for listening to Two Broads Talking Politics. Our theme song is called Are You Listening? off of the album Elephant Shaped Trees by the band Immunuri, and we're using it with permission of the band. Our logo and other original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and was created for use by this podcast.